scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. Then Jesus was approached by the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem, who asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, Why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, Whoever tells his father or mother, Whatever benefit you might have received from me is a gift committed to the temple. He does not have to honor his father. In this way you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites. No, I added the you. But hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Summoning the crowd, he told them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came up and told him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Then Peter said, Explain this parable to us. Do you still lack understanding? He asked. Don't you realize that whatever goes into your mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. These are the things that defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Trinity. Good morning. This is a first. I don't think I've ever preached in a tailgating party session like setting before. So um, this is fun. Wondering uh, if there's going to be any barbecue or cold drinks anywhere. Um, but hey, it's great. Good to be here. Um, you know, we've had a few services online uh, over the last few months, but it's great to finally see you in person, even though this does feel a little bit, a little bit unconventional, but nonetheless, it's great to be here. You know, maybe you remember in the early days of the pandemic, there was a lot of confusion as to how the virus spread. And I remember disinfecting packages when they would come to our house or taking all my clothes and throwing them in the laundry after I would come back from any kind of outing. There was a time when masks were not being recommended, and it took a while before people discerned that outdoor gatherings were more safe than indoor gatherings. Not having a clear understanding of the problem led to some well-intended but not so helpful solutions. Wrong diagnosis, wrong solution. Well, our passage today describes this conflict Jesus had with some religious leaders many centuries ago, a very different context, about an issue that, honestly, we probably know very little and care very little about. But these religious leaders had a misdiagnosis of the problem that led them to some wrong solutions, and in that error, I think there are some relevant 
and valuable lessons for us. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Uh, at the end of Matthew 14, we read that Jesus was in Gennesaret. That's right by the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is a hundred plus miles away. This is long before the days of cars and trains and planes. I mean, this was a long trip. Jerusalem, of course, was the center of Israel, the center of the Jews. And so here are these very big and important people coming from the big city to this little town to address something with Jesus. The point is, this was a big deal to the Pharisees. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, we have a problem if people don't wash their hands before they eat. And quite honestly, I think we have a problem if people don't wash their hands before they do anything, at least sanitize, and right? But for these religious leaders, their concern for unwashed hands was for a very different reason. In the Old Testament, there were these rules about how priests were supposed to wash their hands and their feet before they entered the tabernacle or the temple. Priests were also supposed to bathe after they touched anything unclean, like someone with leprosy or a corpse. This was about ceremonial cleansing more than about good hygiene, right? The germs wouldn't be a concept for many centuries. And so from these Old Testament laws came the idea of ritual or ceremonial washing. For example, sometimes Jews would wash their hands before morning prayer as a way to ceremonially cleanse themselves from any defilement. The tradition of the elders was a collection of teaching over time that would take biblical laws and try to create some definition and boundaries as to what they meant to, so that people would make sure to obey God's commands. I think of them like fences. Like if this is God's command, they would create a border, fences so that we would have an extra layer of protection from accidentally or intentionally breaking God's command. For an example, they had lots of rules about keeping the Sabbath holy and not doing any work. Well, what is work? And what, what, can, what work can you do or not do on the Sabbath? You know, they, so they created all these boundaries and definitions. Well, the Pharisees, understanding this idea of ritual cleansing and having this tradition of the elders, they thought that it would be good for all Jews to always wash their hands before they ate as a way of ceremonial purification. And they had lots of these kinds of rules. In Mark 7, the parallel passage of this story here, we read, and there are many other traditions that the Pharisees observed such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Meaning, they had lots of rules, <laughs> so many rules, well beyond what was taught in the Mosaic Law. We also want to say this zeal for the tradition of the elders was heightened in Jesus' day because, as you may recall, they were under Roman occupation. And these traditions were a way of protecting and preserving Jewish purity in a Gentile world. As mentioned, this was a big deal to the Pharisees. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
for they do not wash their hands when they eat. It's interesting when you read the passage that Jesus doesn't actually give them an answer. Instead, he asks them a question. He, he makes a counterattack. He says, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Hey, you're worried that my disciples are breaking the tradition of the elders? Don't you think you should be worried about how you are breaking the commandment of God? I mean, this is a, this was a hard blow because the Pharisees, maybe you already can tell, they prided themselves and how they protected and preserved the law of God. And Jesus was saying, you are breaking God's command. In fact, you are breaking God's commands not in spite of your traditions, but because of your tradition. All these traditions, all these efforts, these have become the problem. Then he gives an example. He says, uh, the fifth of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and your mother. Kids, maybe your parents like to remind you of that from time to time. Honor your father and your mother. And the seriousness of this command, Jesus points out by pointing another command that says, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Well, one of the traditions of the elders was this idea of dedicating something to God, to declare something korban. The idea was that you could dedicate something to God but it wouldn't be given to God's service until after you died. In the meantime, you're not to use it for ordinary purposes, though you can use it for your own personal, re per personal uses. So, for example, a son could dedicate his property to God so that when he died, it would go to the temple. But in the meantime, he would still use it. He would still use it, and he could then deprive his parents from benefiting from that property. And it seemed people would use this little loophole not so much to honor God, but as a way to deprive their parents. And so Jesus said, you have made void the word of God. These traditions you are using, you have, are at times disobeying God. And then Jesus continues by quoting Isaiah 29. And from his quote, I just want to recognize two problems specified. One, we read, they teach their traditions as doctrine. The problem with my people, Isaiah says, is they take their traditions and they treat it like it's God's word. In Jesus's words, he's saying, you have elevated your tradition above God's commands. I don't know how you grew up, but maybe some of us may have grown up with various religious rules and traditions. No sex, drugs, no rock and roll, no cussing, smoking, no dancing. Got to go to church on Sunday. Very good, everybody. Very good. Uh, go to go to church. Dressed up, singing hymns, don't spend money. And these rules, my, I suspect began as good, honest attempts at trying to take teachings of Scripture, God's commands, and figuring out how to apply them in our real and daily lives. And that's good. There should be real practical applications to God's commands in our lives. But somehow, along the way, 
They take on a life of their own. And it all becomes about keeping the rules. There's a story about an old man, extremely devout, who had a vibrant prayer life. Every morning he would get up, kneel beside his bread, and pray for an extended time. But he had a cat. And from time to time, the cat would come up beside him and rub up against him. And, and it would distract this old man. He, and so to prevent being interrupted, he decided that before he prayed, he would tie the cat to the bedpost. And all the issues were solved. All was well. Well, the man had a daughter who saw the example of her father. And she also would pray every morning by her bed, just as her dad had done. And she also would tie the cat to the bedpost. After a while, this woman got married, had a son who grew up to be a very busy man, always running around. He honestly didn't have a lot of time for religious things. He didn't pray very much, but traditions were important to him. And so every morning he would tie the cat to the bedpost. See, we preserve the form, but somewhere along the way, we lose its meaning. We keep tying the cat to the bedpost. The rules and traditions take on a life of their own. In Romans, Paul describes the Jews this way. For I bear witness, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul is saying that we can have a, quote, zeal for God, but that zeal for God is a misplaced zeal. It is a zeal of sorts, but it's not a zeal for God. Instead, it is a zeal of, to try to establish a righteousness of our own. And I think this is apt for the Pharisees, for they certainly were zealous. I mean, if we ever met one of these guys, I think we would all just be so impressed, so devoted, so dedicated, so rigorous and disciplined and sacrificial and radical. They, were, they certainly thought that they were serving God, only to hear Jesus say, no, you are disobeying God. You are not serving God. Your zeal is misplaced. And I think there is a warning here for us because I think it's very possible to think that we're following God and to be observing all the rules and traditions. But we may be mistaken. I think it's good for us as religious church people, perhaps, to at least pause and consider whether we too have misplaced our zeal whether we too are self-deceived. Are we really serving God? Why is it that we have a tendency to replace God's law with our traditions? Why does that happen? Why do we tend to create rules? Because I'm suggesting this is not just an issue with the Pharisees. This is a human nature. This is an issue for a lot of us. Romans, I think, gives one explanation, the passage we just read, is because we're trying to establish a righteousness of our own. We like to break things down to certain rules that we can follow, and it becomes a way of proving ourselves, justifying ourselves, 
showing to ourselves and to everybody else, we are good people. We are acceptable. We are respectable. We are lovable. And again, that's not, that's not just Pharisees. We gravitate toward rules as a way of earning points, proving our worth. And so we break God's commands, not in spite of our traditions, but because of our traditions. We use our traditions to establish a righteousness of our own. One way you can tell if someone is trying to establish a righteousness of their own is they would have a critical and judgmental spirit, which is where our story began. The Pharisees were complaining to Jesus about why the disciples didn't follow their rules. It all becomes about keeping the rules. And we become very harsh with those who don't keep the rules. And, we, and when we can keep the rules, we, be, we become self-righteous, a little boastful. And we look down again on those who don't. I think that critical and judgmental spirit, unfortunately, is not so uncommon in churches today. I also think it's not so uncommon in our very polarized society. There's a lot of judgment, a lot of criticalness, a lot of calling foul on those who are not keeping our rules. Now, for some of us, this is not our problem. We don't try to follow religious rules. In fact, <laughs> we are quite adverse to religious rules. <laughs> we, you know, that is not our problem. Instead, we follow our culture. We embrace the values and practices of our society. We don't follow religious traditions as much as we follow our cultural traditions. For example, our society celebrates, and maybe we do, we as well celebrate autonomy. We want to make our own rules, call our, our own shots, do our own things, and do it our own way. And we don't want anyone else telling us otherwise what to do or who to be. Or we celebrate and have embraced the value of authenticity. Be yourself. You do you. And as long as you're being honest and true to yourself, don't let anyone tell you what to do or who to be. You just be you. And we are our ultimate authority. We are judged. No one else can tell us what's right or wrong for us. We decide for ourselves. And we have a cancel culture that says, if someone disagrees with us, we may completely ignore them, disregard them. We may even attack them you're not allowed to violate what I believe. And there are other values in our society, but the point is that we've embraced the values and the norms of our culture, that we are all, to some degree, products of our society. And here's the sign. We can be very judgmental and critical of those who violate these rules. We follow our traditions, be they religious traditions or cultural traditions. The second problem that Jesus points out in his reference to Isaiah is, quote, this people 
honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And I think this actually is the deeper problem. Our hearts are far from God. See, maybe we try to honor God with our lips by following religious traditions. Maybe we don't try to honor God with our lips and we follow cultural traditions. We may have a religious form or an irreligious form, but the problem is we don't love God. We don't really want him. We don't desire him. We don't seek him. We don't trust him. We want to live our own lives, have our own way, get our own glory. You know, in marriage, it's not, the issue is not so much whether he brings chocolates and flowers. The issue is not whether he helps in the kitchen or helps with the kids. The issue is not does he give hugs and say all the right words. The issue is, does he love her? Does he love her? God asks that question and concludes in the Isaiah passage, Despite their many words, no. No, my people do not. Their hearts, their hearts are far from me. See, that, that's the problem. The issue of the heart comes into greater focus and takes on additional meaning because Jesus moves on. And he moves from the idea of traditions to the idea of defilement and purity. And he's saying it's not whether you wash your hands or not. It's not about what you eat or not. These are things on the outside. Things on the outside don't defile us. Instead, Jesus redefines defilement and purity in a radically new way. Because the Jews, you see, they had lots of rules about what foods you should and shouldn't eat what you were and weren't a lot supposed to be doing about all this other stuff. And Jesus is saying, that's not the issue. Peter would learn this lesson in a very poignant way when in Acts 11, he sees a vision of unclean foods being brought down from heaven and a voice saying, go ahead and eat the pork chops and the bacon. <laughs> go ahead. God has made all this clean. These are not the issue. This is not what makes us clean or unclean. Let me extrapolate. It's not whether or not you drink or smoke or vape. It's not about whether you go to church, though I'm glad you came, but that's actually not really the issue. It's not about whether you read your Bible or said your prayers. It's not about what movies you watch or music you listen to or websites you visit. It's not about your political views or who you voted for. It's not about masking or not masking or address, addressing racial injustice or denying racial injustice. These do not make you defiled or pure. These are all external. Instead, Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. 
It's not what we eat or touch. That's not the issue. The issue is our hearts. Our hearts covet and deceive and lust and hate. Our hearts are envious and stingy and materialistic and greedy and vain and manipulative and insecure and people-pleasing and demanding and controlling and critical and calloused and petty and self-righteous. That's the problem. Our hearts are defiled. And from such hearts come words and come action. Jesus is saying the ceremonial approach to cleanliness, to sin, the ceremonial cleanliness approach to sin is inaccurate and inadequate. Sin is not out there, and so, ooh, got to wash your hands. That's not the problem. No, sin is in here. Washing our hands doesn't purify the in here problem. We have a far bigger, deeper problem. Our hearts are defiled and far from God. Wrong diagnosis wrong solution. See, in our passage, I think Jesus just breaks us down. We think we're serving God, and then now you're just following your traditions and your rules. In fact, you're disobeying my commands. We think we have a zeal for God. Roman says, no, you're just trying to establish a righteousness of your own. We think we try to make ourselves pure and righteous with our rules and our traditions, but the rules and traditions, they don't change our heart. Telling someone to be pure doesn't remove the lust from their heart. Telling someone to go to church doesn't create a spirit of worship. See, this approach to purity and righteousness is inaccurate and inadequate. We need something that will heal our hearts. Hearts that are defiled and far from God. What are we to do? How do, we, how do we fix this? How does this change? Well, there's a lot that could be said to that question, but I just want to share a couple thoughts. Jesus quoted from Isaiah 29. He said, as we recall, because this people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their, fe- their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, watch, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. What is God's response to calloused, distant hearts? He says, behold, I will do wonderful things. Wonder upon wonder. And the passage continues. Let me just pick it up at verse 18. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. God will open the ears of the deaf, the eyes of the blind. The meek and the poor will experience the joy and the goodness of the Lord. 
Two quick thoughts here. Number one, we are helpless to heal our own hearts. That is not the solution in Isaiah 29. All right, so then my people go and do this and that. That's no, 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 no. He's saying God will do wonderful things. In Galatians, Paul points out, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If there was something we could do to solve the problem, Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. That he died on the cross is evidence to us we can't solve this problem. We are helpless and hopeless. Instead, God must act. God must do wonder upon wonder. God must open the ears of the deaf and the eyes of the blind. God must reveal himself. God must shine upon our hearts. The story of the gospel is not that we sought God, but that God sought us. Not that we loved God, but that God first loved us. God sought us. God loved us. God healed us. Therein is our hope. Number two, the pure in heart see God. How is it that our hearts are purified and healed? It is in seeing the God of wonders who sought us, loved us, and healed us. It is in, God is the one who opens our eyes. And now that our eyes are open, we can see him. And in seeing him, our hearts are drawn. Our hearts are melted. Our hearts are changed. To use the words of an old Bing Crosby song, to see you is to love you. Or in the words of A.W. Tozer, to know him is to love him. And to know him better is to love him more. That our eyes would be open to see the beauty, the glory, the goodness of God. To see him is to love him. You cannot do otherwise. And how might we see him? Most clearly we see him in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the one who sought us and loved us, who died for our sins and conquered sin and death to give us new life. We look at Jesus. Even in our passage here today, Matthew 15, we look at Jesus and what do we see? <clears throat> I see a Jesus who understood the problem. A Jesus who understood the problem and who sees and knows our hearts. A Jesus who knew and taught the truth. I see a Jesus who understood the problem and he provided the solution. He knew we couldn't save this, solve this, heal this. He went to the cross to die for our sins. He rose to new life, to give us new life. And he sent us the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts that we might see him 
more and more. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There's an old hymn that says, Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like him thou shalt be, thy friends in thy conduct, his likeness shall see. Or maybe in the words of an old chorus I remember singing when I was a kid, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We look to Jesus. We meditate on how he sought us, loved us, found us, healed us. We remember how he sacrificially loves us, how he has been good and faithful toward us, and by his spirit, we behold his glory and grace. In a marriage, the issue is not whether he brings chocolates and flowers, whether he helps in the kitchen or with the kids, whether he gives hugs and says the right words. The issue is, does he love her? God asks that question, and may he say, my people, my people here, yes. Yes, they see me. They know me. They love me. They see me for who I am and all I've done and their hearts are given to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's, uh, it's so easy for us to get caught up in the rules. We are so instinctively self-reliant and performance-based. God, forgive us. And teach us instead to gaze upon you to behold you by your spirit, through your word, through your people and your sacraments. Lord, that we might see you more. For to see you would be to love you and to worship you as you are worthy to be loved and worshiped. Lord, would you purify our hearts with a greater revelation of your goodness and glory upon our lives. We love you. Help us to love you more. In Christ's name we pray, amen.